0: I had a phone conversation just uh, recently with a friend, and the um, kind of friend that you can say how things are really going. And, and when we talked about how, we were, how we're doing, he talked about the things going on in his life. He he said a phrase that I've heard before, used before, but but it really struck me. And he, he was talking about just a, a whole series of things in his life that have been hard and painful and tough. And, he, and then he stopped, he said, Tom, he said, I asked him, so how are you doing? he said, Tom, I could really use a win right now. When he said that, it, something in me just kind of went, I felt something. I, I felt emotion and I felt a connection. And you know how some, when sometimes somebody says something that is just really true of you at the same time and you go, that's it, that's it. And I thought that's, that's how I feel right now. And I will tell you going into what, I'm, what we're going to do, looking at the Word of God today, that my, in my life right now, I feel it right now. I just feel like I could really use a win. Now, I get it. God says we're winners. God knows the end game. God says I can be victorious. But you know what? There's a whole lot of days in my life when I just don't feel that. And there are a whole lot of times in my life where I just don't see it happening. And there are some times when if, I'm sorry if it's weak, but I just kind of feel like saying, I just need a win. Can I just get a one win? And I have no idea, but I'm just going to guess that there are some people around this room right now who know what that's about. Maybe some who right now That would summarize how things are going on in your life. There's just relentless sense of you feel like you're being pummeled, that the circumstances never seem to turn out the way you want them to, that the environments never seem to change, that things have gone from bad to worse, that the more you pray and the more you try to be faithful, you don't see anything happening. And The idea of, of living the victorious Christian life just sounds like rhetoric. It sounds like something they write to sell books, which they do, by the way. What do you do with that? Because there's always another setback. There's always another loss. And then, but yet we know, okay, but here, here's a fact. We read what, I believe that there's a God. I believe it. I believe that what he says is true. And so we read passages like in Psalm 60 where it says, with God we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. In First Corinthians 15 it says, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37, these are these are, are famous passages. No, in all these things. This is right. And will anything separate us from the love of God, it says. And then it says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I'm not just a conqueror. More than conquerors through him who loved us. And so we read that God says, look, you involve me. In your world, you revol- involve me in your life. You invite me to initiate my power and my presence and my provision in your situation. And I will bring victory out of this. I will bring, pr- God gives promises. God says he will bless. We hear that. And, I, and when I hear it, how many of us wouldn't take that? Gladly. Bring it on, we say. Come on in, do it. Do do what you want to do. Okay, do your thing. So here's the question. How does it happen? When does it happen? When God does that, if he does, how does that work? And we're going to see in the the final little section of, of Joshua 1 through 10, where kind of the conquest of the promised land more or less rounds itself out. The rest of the book of Joshua, which we won't follow through, but it talks about ongoing battles, but it, then it talks about parceling out the promised land and, and God, and it culminates in Joshua saying, you choose who you're going to follow, but for me and my house, we're going to follow Yahweh, we're going to follow God. But when we get to this, this section, in Joshua chapter 10, we kind of get a little sample. So I want to invite you to look with me if you have access to the word of God in one form or another, Joshua chapter 10. And in summary, this is, this is the fulfillment of a promise that God gave through Abraham that said, I'm going to bring the line of my redemption for the world. It's all one story. The line of my redemption of the world. is going. To, I'm going to get a people for myself. I'm going to give them a land from which it's going to work. I'm going to give them a kingly line. I'm going to bring the Messiah through it. And that Messiah is going to sacrifice, like we just celebrated, for the sins of the entire world. This is all part of the plan. Now God says, okay, that promise about the land, it's on. This is your moment. Joshua and your followers. 40 years of wandering, now you go into the land, take the land. And this, the whole conquest, is, serves a couple, two different purposes. It is a historical account, an accurate historical account of God working in time and space in our world to enact his promise. It also serves, First Corinthians tells us, as an example, as a life lesson. We can learn, because it's, get this, it's the same God. The same God who's active here is the same God who I follow and you follow. It's the same God. It gives us lessons about how faith works and how we work with it. So, so what happens here? Now, we're gonna, so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this part of the story, just kind of observe the story, and then we're going to step back from it and say, now, what are the lessons, and how does it apply to us? And in Joshua chapter 10, the context of this, as we followed from, from last week, is, is uh, there's, there's this alliance that's happened. And if if you didn't hear the uh, Larry speaking out last week, you should listen to it. it. Had some good stuff in there. And and God's people have conquered. They've they've made inroads into the Promised Land. They've conquered Jericho. They've conquered Ai. They've come in from north of the Dead Sea, and then they've set up a post, pretty much a, a, where their operation is at a place called Gilgal. Now now the Promised Land south of there, which is all inhabited by people who God has already put a death penalty on, because they have betrayed Him and they have and they have followed false gods, and he has said, you're, we're going we're to clear this group out, they are, I, and you're my instrument to do it. So they're positioned to Gilgal to move south. The people from Gibeon, which is as you see on the map just next, have deceived them, making them think they're from far away into an alliance. So they won't be conquered by them. Out of fear, they go, and, and that's what last week was about. Now, that's where this picks up, because news of that travels. So I'm going to read the first five verses of, of uh, Joshua 10. Now, Adonai king of Jerusalem, by the way, there are all these, little, these are all little city states. Just like Jer- Jer- Jericho was, Ai was, they're little, they're, they're, a lot of them are built on tells and mounds, and they're kind of uh, like they're, they're governments unto themselves, but they form sometimes alliances, but they function independently. The one that's in Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, uh, doing to Ai and its king as he had uh, done to Jericho and its king, and he'd also heard that the people of Gideon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them, so that's what we talked about last week. Now, he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai. All its men were good fat fighters, so the guy's he's shaken. He's shaking in his boots because he sees these guys are poised to sweep down to the south and keep going. So he comes up with a plan. Adonai, uh, a king of Jerusalem, appealed to, to four other kings. Hoam king of Hebron, Piram king of Jarmuth, Japhia king of Lachish, and Debir king of Eglon. Those are right there. These are Canaanites. These are the people who God has said must must be destroyed. And he appeals to them and he says, verse 4, come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the king's Five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmath, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon. So this is what they did. They moved forward outside of Gibeon to attack it. They're doing this out of fear. This is a coalition, five king coalition, a southern coalition of hill country, city states, and they're saying out of desperation, out of fear, and a little bit out of anger at Gibeon. They're saying, we're not letting them go. This is too strategic. Gibeon continues to fall. We're in trouble. It's very, very similar to what you may have heard happen just even recently, Operation Texas secede. happens about every 10 years. the, The great state of Texas tries to decide whether they want to secede from the union. And you may not know this, but Texas is the only state in our union that actually owns its own gold bars. And they are stored right now in New York, but they just passed legislation that they want those moved out of New York back into the borders of Texas. They have 5,600 gold bars valued at an estimated $650 million. And now there's petitions that have been started. uh, Just starting, they passed that law in June. Petitions have been going on just this past week to say that Texas doesn't like where the country's going. Maybe you don't either, but Texas is going to do something about it. You don't mess with Texas, we're going to secede from the union. If Texas did that, and let's just say that the bordering te- states around Texas said, oh, no, you don't. Not on our watch, you're not. And they said, Texas, you're coming back in. Either by will or by force, you're coming back in. And they mobilize troops to go against Texas. And they go, Texas, you can't do it. You're part of us, and you're going to stay with us. That's kind of what's happening here. Except the added thing is that there, there's a threat going on. That is a military threat on their doorstep, ready to go. Maybe that's not so far-fetched from where we are now. So, this all gets reported. And verse 6 says, The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. So, right across there, and they, go, and they just made this pact, and they say, uh, Don't abandon your servants. Come up uh, to us quickly. Save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. And so Joshua does something. He marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. Now, what happens here, here's here's just an observation. That's a pretty significant army that has just mobilized against God's people. But isn't it interesting that Joshua, I would say, take that as bad news. Wouldn't you take it as bad news? All right, they're coming, and they're after us, and here they come, and they've joined forces. This is not good. Isn't it funny, it's interesting, that you're gonna see that Joshua sees this as an opportunity more than an adversity. And there's a reason for that. Because God has made a promise. A promise of victory. God has promised this land. Joshua's already seen that if we trust God, if we obey God, We're going to actually see victory over this. And so when he looks at this, he goes, hey, you know what? They just made our job easier for us. Instead of having to go to five different fortified cities, lay siege or do whatever it takes to fight five different battles, they're leaving their fortifications. They're making themselves vulnerable. They're all coming to us. We can deal with this all at one time. He has confidence in God's promises. And so he he marches his troops from there. And then in verse 8 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I've given them them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Now, what's going to happen here is you're about to see the biggest act of God that happens in the entire conquest. And you've already seen the Jordan River parted. You've already seen the walls of Jericho fall down. But what you're about to see happen in this passage is Is a miracle, an act of God that supersedes them all in its scope and its power. And when this happens, and and what happens around it, I want to invite you to do something. I'm just going to read through some of these verses. You can follow along. And I want to I want to ask you to think about this the answer to this question. When you read this, who is it saying is responsible for the victory? Is it Joshua and the armies that bring the victory? Are given credit for the victory? Is it God, supernaturally, being given credit for the victory? And just think about that as you hear some of these phrases. So here we go. Look in look verse 9. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who, before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going down to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah, At As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth-horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. More of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the uh, Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon over the valley of uh, Ajilon. And so the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar, which is a a Hebrew poetry collection from that day. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky, delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it, before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now let me just keep reading, because after this happens, you're still going to see some phrases. Ask yourself the question, who's responsible? Who's who's gaining the victory here? Is it the army that's conquering, or is it God that's conquering? All right, so look at verse 19. I'm just going to take some sample verses. Joshua says, don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear. Don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man, except for the few who were left, who reached their fortified cities. Okay, skip down to just verse uh, 25. Joshua said to them, don't be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you're going to fight. And so Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees. And they were left hanging on the trees until evening. Let's get down to verse 28. That day Joshua took Makeda, he put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. I'm just browsing now. You can read through these on your own if you like. If you see verse 30, a very similar phrase But it says, the Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it, Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors. If you skip down to verse 40, you see very similar things happen in verse 40. Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, which is the south, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. Verse 42, all their kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought Or uh, uh, Yeah, fought for Israel. All right, it's a trick question, right? Who's responsible for the promise being fulfilled? Who's responsible? Is it the human element where they are conquerors? Is it God supernaturally being involved? Who's responsible? Well, they're both. You see clear references where it says it is God fighting for Israel. It is God bringing the victory. It is God who's killing more people with hailstones than with... Swords, and then it says, "But Joshua and his armies routed and defeated them." Make a note of that because it's really important about how promises are fulfilled, how God works in our midst when we need a win. Now, just a few few reflections about this. I I just think it's fascinating in verse eleven where it says how this happened. That, so, so. They surprise them, and they, t- and they cause these uh, five armies to flee. And while they're fleeing, they're chasing them. They're trying to reach them before they can reach the fortifications of their cities. And they're, cha- and they're literally chasing them to try to enact the death penalty God has on them. And then it says, As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth-hor to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. Now, I I'm just. can you imagine being in the nation of Israel and, you, and, you, and, you're, and you're chasing these guys, and then all of a sudden you're seeing, and, and the word for hailstones, it, it may not actually be ice. It may be actually stone. It could be like meteorite type of things. And all of a sudden you're chasing bad guys, and out of nowhere, stuff is falling out of the earth and picking them off. Would that be like the coolest thing you've ever seen in your life? I, I'm sorry, I take sick pleasure when I see, um, when, when, like you see videos and stuff where somebody's got a dash cam on their, on their car, and, and there was one where somebody, the road racing, and the guy's trying to cut. and He's giving the finger to this woman. And he's yelling, and he, and he gets past her. And all of a sudden, his car, his truck spins out and hits the side. And she laughs at him. And everybody, oh, so you shouldn't have laughed at him. I go, doggone, I'd laugh at him. He kind of got. Or, or have you ever seen it where you're you're going down the road and somebody like cuts, the, cuts in front to try to cut off traffic, or they just fly past you and they're just. And then you, two minutes later, you see lights and you see them pulled over. Okay, come on, be honest. How do you feel at that moment? You feel like I feel, unless, of course, you're the one who got pulled over. God does this wild stuff to say, oh, no, there's a promise, and it's going to get fulfilled. But that's not the biggest thing that happens. What biggest? What the biggest thing that happens is verse 12 and following. Because they're running, they're, they think they're going to run out of daylight, and they're in these rugged hill countries. There's all kinds of places to hide caves and, and mounds, and just all kinds of places that, that the, an army could, could kind of just dissolve into. And if they're going to fulfill this victory, they need more time, they need more daylight. And so, Joshua, I presume under the initiative of God, who calls on to this, he stands up and he, in the name of God, he calls on the sun to stop moving across the sky. It says for an entire day that happened. The moon stayed in one place, the sun stayed in one place, and they were able to continue the the victory march because they didn't run out of daylight. That is considered by most scholars The most significant physical miracle event other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ by a whole lot of people, this, more than parting the Red Sea, more than anything else they say, this defies physics in ways that nothing else can. This is something that is so out of the ordinary. And so there's, as a result of that, bring in the critics. Bring in the science community who goes, hogwash. Hogwash. Here's your pr- th- this passage gets attacked as many, as much as just about anything else by those who want to say that the Bible is really just, it's just poetry, it's just fairy tales, it's just stories of oral history being passed down. It cannot be historically true because the science does not work and science is eternal. And so you've got a whole lot of folks who say, here's what would happen if 6.66 trillion tons of gravel and water stopped spinning, okay, because one of the things was, well, if it stays positioned, that means the earth stopped rotating right here 's what would happen according to science. if that happened if it, if, it, if it stopped spinning, then everybody on it would everybody on the planet, on the face of the planet would immediately be flung or flung off it, or at least pretty hard because up to eleven hundred miles an hour is. How the Earth is turning, and and a body in motion tends to stay in motion. So the Earth stops, and everything on it is going to keep moving. And so we're going to lurch forward at 1,100 miles an hour, which means we're going to get. We're, we're, I'm going to cream into you. That that's what's going to happen. We're not just going to stand still. If 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 the other thing is the atmosphere would still be in motion as the Earth stopped, and the atmosphere, which is in motion, has those 1,100 mile an hour winds, which would by themselves scour the earth and all the land masses clean of anything not attached to bedrock. Rocks, topsoil, trees, buildings, your dog swept away at 1,100 miles an hour. The ocean, since they would have momentum, would lurch forward and there would be tidal waves that would destroy major parts of, of dry ground and the molten magma that's at the core of our earth would be in motion and therefore it would shift and then we would have these giant explosions of volcanoes and all that kind of stuff. So therefore, this cannot be true. And if you just want to know, just for fun, if the earth, let's say, okay, it wasn't turning, it stopped rotating through the solar system. God stopped it. Well, if that happened, then the people on one side would go flying off the planet at 60,000 miles an hour. You go right through the atmosphere. That would be kind of cool. Good way to die. People on the other side from the stop would just get planted from where they stand into the earth, and the earth would immediately start to drop in its in its rotation or in its uh around the, the sun and it would and it would move toward the sun. Within about 64 days, it would it would hit the sun and it would, it would all be consumed by then. No one's making it out of this, is that. And so as a result of that, there are a whole lot of people who have come up with alternatives. Okay. Well, you know. Maybe so. That you, you, if you look at, it, you'll find all these kinds of things to say. Let's explain this so it makes it, it, it's reasonable. Perhaps the passage is poetical; it's not meant to be understood literally. Perhaps that sun standing still is actually an eclipse of the sun, and there's a diffusion of the rays, and there's some science that might make that happen. And the, and 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 maybe that's what it was. Maybe they appeared to be out of their regular place by a mirage. Maybe God just gave a mirage. Maybe He said a kind of the equivalent of mirrors that allowed wherever the sun was to just reflect and be on this particular place because you know what we're doing? We're trying to save God some embarrassment because everybody knows you can't argue with science. Everybody knows that science is absolute. Science is always right. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but can I tell you a pet peeve? I am sick and tired of the academic scientific community implying that people who believe God are to a person uneducated, toothless, backwoods, inbreeders who have no sense whatsoever and can't possibly understand what's true and that's why they believe what they believe. You need to know this. You're not going to read about this But the scientific community is full of people who believe the Bible is true, believe the history of the Bible is true. Astrophysicists, nuclear scientists, I could give you lists of people who say, oh, they get get discredited, they just get waved out by the greater scientific community. No, there are people who are smart people, people with high IQs, some of the most brilliant people on the planet who understand that science serves a purpose, but science is not our God. And is it that hard to believe that a being who is not flesh and blood, the creator and master of all the universe, who lives in dimensions beyond any scope we could ever measure or understand, that that being is capable of not just creating a universe with laws of physics, but he is capable of not being controlled by those laws that he's capable of stopping the atmosphere and the solar system if he wants to. He's capable of doing whatever he wants for his purposes, and he can do it, he has done it, he will do it. And just because in our little corner of history, with our little minds and our little instrumentation, we've decided, how arrogant is it, that the human race would say, we have now, in the grand scheme of all history, our collective minds have now come up with instrumentation that is so above uh, perfecting, so above having anything else show that it needs to be improved, that we can definitively, for your alternative, det- determine what can happen, what has happened, and what will happen. How arrogant is that? I believe that there is a God who does this kind of thing, has done it in the past, and when he says it, it happened. And it's not left up to me to defend him to say how it, it could have happened. And you know what, God bless you if you want to try. Seriously, go ahead. It's okay. There's a lot of science that, you, that comes up with that, that talks about how creation can happen. There's a lot of science that talks about why we're here and what we're doing here and how our bodies are formed. And, and There's a lot of science that fits with what God has said. But here's what I want to tell you. Having said all that, can I tell you, don't let that distract you from the main point of this. I believe it's true. I believe it happens. I believe God did it in a way that I don't have to understand. But the main point of this is that God is supreme over all his laws and physics and nature. And hear this, when God gets involved in life, when God gets involved in your life, there is no limit to the extremes he will go to to deliver on his promise. He will deliver on his promise. That's what the point of this is. You can trust that. And those who trust him will see that. Now, along with that, God gets involved, but understand that these folks had to act also. They had to act in obedience to take the victory. God rains down hailstones, but they still carried the sword. They still had to march out. They still had to, to do the human element of obeying God. I was in a high-level doctorate course that I had and it was intricacies of the Old Testament and the, and the professor was teaching and said, I'm gonna tell you a simple solution to everything we're talking about, about all the intricacies of the purpose of the Old Testament. Here it is. You want, this is how the, the message of the Old Testament. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's it. That's what I wanted to put on the final. I wasn't allowed. (laughs) Now, just to finish the story, the subsequent momentum from that victory, they've knocked off the, God, God extends the day, they extend the victory, and they sweep through the promised land. And if you just, I'm just going to summarize it, verses 28 to 42, is Joshua and his armies moving forward, they go southward, and they go from place to place, and they've already taken out the armies, and they conquer, and they, and they fulfill this, until you get to chapter 11, verse 16, where it says, so Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills. The Arabah and the mountains of Israel and the foothills. He goes on to just explain it all. It is the promised land for being fulfilled. They've enact, they enact God's justice. And if you get to the end of verse, uh, chapter 11 and verse 23, it says So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then it says this phrase And then the land had rest from war. You know what? They got to win. So what are the lessons? Just a couple of them to share and just to try to apply to those of us who, especially for those of us in the room who say, I could use a win right now. What do I do? Here's what we can see from how God fulfills his promises. First of all, there is a faith partnership in God's plan to victory and promise and blessing. A faith partnership between us and God about who enacts it. See, there are two extremes you could go to when it says, how do I get, how do I get victory in my life? Well, you, the extreme is it's all you. You have to enact it, you go after it, you get inspired by God, but then you work hard and, you, and, and a whole lot of us who are independent, hardworking people, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring the victory because well, God has inspired us, but it's up to us. And on the other end of the spectrum is kind of a passive approach that says i need god to do stuff and it doesn't my heart doesn't need not to be need to be altered at all i just need god to come in i need to let go and let god do it and i'm just going to be passive and let him do it and then he's going to bring the victory and then everything's going to be better for me but it doesn't necessarily change my heart as part of that it doesn't require me to be active i don't have to get my hands dirty i don't need to struggle in that can I just ask you, which of those extremes do you tend toward? Just you. You tend toward the one where you just kind of get inspired by God, but you do it, or do you tend to the, I'm just waiting for God to do something. I'm Man, why isn't he doing something? I'm asking him. He needs to do something. The partnership is this, that you enact his way You trust him enough to say, I'm going to step out. I'm going to live according to his word and his directives in my life. I'm going to take the risks that are involved in this. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to follow him. You enact his way, and then God injects the no way. The stuff that you go, what just happened? Where did that come from? Because when God joins the battle, he comes up with ways to, to move in our lives that no one can predict, no one can see coming. And that's, that's the second lesson here. That there is no length to which God will not go to keep his promises in your life. To bring his victory in his time. You know, I, don't you, I think we need to redefine the term acts of God. Don't we? When people say it's an act of God, isn't it? it's always like this terrible, horrible thing that happened. It's a hurricane. That's an act of God. Oh, man, our lives were lost. Oh, it's awful. Well, that's, you know, God. He does that stuff. You know, you, you have insurance writers. You go, well, you know, you're insured about stuff, but those acts of God stuff. Well, you know what the acts of God stuff is? It's the stuff that costs you the most. You know, the rains flood in. Oh, that's an act of God. Sorry, we don't can't insure you. Well, God, when God gets involved, woo, boy, oh, boy, what a mess he makes. Can we redefine what an act of God is? Because you know what, there are acts of God happening around you every day. Some of them are extreme, like the sun standing still, and some of them we just don't we don't recognize that that they happen. But do you, can you begin to can I begin to recognize the acts of God that are part of fulfilling His promise? in my world and that's eventually going to lead to my victory. To see that he's doing stuff. Yes, I I need to be faithful. I need to keep moving forward. I need to keep rowing the boat. And then all of a sudden he brings a wave and it just launches forward in ways I never saw coming. Have you had that happen? It's an act of God. When the person who's been causing you the most trouble at work and you just don't know and it's just driving you crazy, all of a sudden they get Promoted, or transferred, or they quit, or they're fired. An offer comes out of nowhere, and it changes your whole perspective on your job, or your situation, or your house sale, or whatever it might be. There's a there's a change in attitude that comes from somebody who's hard to be around, and you don't know how it happened. But something stirred, something outside you did it. There's a chance encounter. Have you had a chance encounter with someone that led to something? Like, I don't know where that came from. It's like hailstones falling out of the sky to defeat my enemies. I think it would be just a great exercise in our cell groups to just go around and share what are the acts of God that you've seen him do in the last six months? Because they've been there. Sometimes we just haven't noticed them. And then sometimes... You can't help but notice them. Sometimes God stops the sun in the sky for you. Sometimes something is so radically introduced into your life that you say, I can't believe that God would know my situation, love me so much that he would do that. Now, I want that to happen today. I want it to happen every day. I want him to stop the sun in the sky. But you know what? He doesn't always do that. But we follow a God who says, I will enact my promise. Trust me. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. And when we do, here's the simple phrase. God will deliver you. Paul wrote this little phrase in 2 Corinthians it's past present and future he has delivered us from such a deadly peril he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will continue in the present to deliver us god will deliver you god will deliver you god it will get it personally involved you trust him you do as we saw through the the people of israel and joshua you enact his ways you don't deviate from the left or the right he says hang on to my word stay true to my word live it out and god will get actively involved you can count on that god will deliver you god will deliver he he will do something that will bring redemption to the situation it may not be in your timing it may not be the way you figured or you sketched out or you that you said here's the script i'd like you to follow but god will deliver some of us in the room had something going on in our lives five years ago. Think about this. Some of you, right, you can think about it. There was something in your, in your life five years ago that was so disturbing, so problematic, so much of an obstacle, so much of a heartache for you that you felt like it was never going to end and it was never going to have relief. And five years later, some of us in the room, we, you don't even remember when it stopped. You go, uh-huh, that's right. That doesn't keep me awake anymore. When that happened. In his timing, God will deliver. When he makes promises, he keeps them. And he promises me this. Guys, I'm hanging on to this. that The one who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He promises me this. That, That God will do what's good for those who love him. No matter where my course goes, he will eventually bring good out of it for those who love him. God has promised me that he will deliver me physically and spiritually, eternally. It's a promise, it's ironclad. He's promised that he will never, ever leave me. He will never, ever forsake me. The Psalms say, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed begging for bread. God will deliver, and God will deliver you. Not just a general sense of, oh, yeah, he's going to work things out for his glory in the world. Oh, yes, everything's going to turn out okay. No, no, God is going to do that for you. He specifically has come into your life. He knows where you're going. He knows what he wants to do in your life, my life. He will deliver you. Trust him. Obey him. There's no other way. Pray with me.